good people can sing, but everybody else just like enjoy it as a performance. Um, and I think some people probably, if we're honest, even if you grew up in the church, you feel that way, that like maybe the worship team should just be performers and then we just enjoy it and we can just sit down and kind of consume and enjoy it. But that's very different than what we're called to do. And so the first thing I want to say is just thank you to all of the volunteers who serve on the worship team for leading us and helping us sing as a church. That's a, an amazing service to us. And I think it can probably be a little confusing because it feels like you're performing a little bit, but then you hear the people singing and responding to your leadership. And so all the volunteers, and then of course Johnny, we're just so thankful for that. And I bring that up because we're in Psalms for the summer, and the psalm that we're looking at today is Psalm 4. In Psalm 4, the occasion, the purpose of it, is that it was written to the choir master and should be sung with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. So that's something that's important to know about the psalms, is that they are songs. They are supposed to be sung. They're musical pieces. And we don't really know much about the, um, the form of music that they would put them to. That's why the salahs, the little salahs that you see, like nobody knows what those actually mean. But they probably mean something to the musicians who are performing them. And so you have to ask your, yourself the question, like, why? Why is there a book in the Bible that is written for the purpose of singing? Especially one that the songs, they're not, they don't sound a lot like the songs that we're used to singing. These songs can be pretty dark. These songs talk about pieces of the history of the people of Israel that would kind of bring up shame. But they're supposed to sing them. And I think it's, it's for this reason, so the book of Psalms is really preparing the people for the Messiah. And so the fact that God wants them to sing it, it I mean, he designed us, so he knows that when we sing something, it involves more than just our brain. It involves our body. It involves our souls. It involves our feelings. And so the Psalms are really preparing the whole person to receive the Messiah. And most of the Psalms are written from the standpoint of anticipation and longing. And in Psalm 4, that's where we're kind of jumping into. Because last week we looked at Psalm 3 and they're connected where we saw David crying out and lamenting about all of his foes, which just happened to be his son. And his son had led a rebellion of his people. And so the king of Israel was being attacked by his very own people. And so today, in Psalm 4, we see that same context. But the little superscription of it says that this is to the choir master, and so it's to be sung. 
And so there's something to sing about in this psalm. And we're going to look at what that is. But you can, we're going to go ahead and read it. You can turn with me to Psalm 4. And it is to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this book, and we ask that you would help us to see what David saw, that you would help us to see how you use the persecution, the suffering, the evil that is afflicted against the righteous. Lord, and I ask that even today we would be confronted with that and that it would cause us to reflect, cause us to think, cause us to reorient our lives again to who you are and what you have done. So Lord, I ask that you would be with us here this morning, that you would help us to hear what you have in your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm going to try and convince you guys of something. I'm going to try and convince you that this is a psalm that is talking about repentance. And it probably wouldn't be the first thing that you thought of if you just did a quick reading of it. Because it can kind of seem a little disconnected. So David seems to be going from kind of like addressing God and talking to him to then talking about to the people around him or talking about the people who are chasing after him. And then kind of these disjointed commands like be angry, don't sin, offer right sacrifices. And so it seems a little bit discombobulated, but it's actually unified under this idea of repentance. And that repentance is the right response to seeing Christ on the cross. And so I'm going to try and convince you of that, convince myself of that here this morning, that repentance is the right response of viewing Christ on the cross. And of course, David is a foreshadowing of that. So what David is going through as the anointed king foreshadows the fulfillment of who David is when Jesus comes. And so we're using the context of David's life to help us see Jesus more clearly and in a full way. 
So the first thing that we're going to see is David, he is addressing God first. And that is really important. And I think that we can take that and apply it to our lives directly. That when we are facing trials, when we're facing a situation that we're not happy about, when we're facing something that feels impossible, the first thing that we should do is to go to God in prayer. That's something we all know. That's not going to shock anybody that a pastor is telling you, go to God in prayer when you're facing hard times. It's really hard to do, though, isn't it? Think about it. Think about the last time you faced something that you did not want to face, a situation that you didn't want to be in. How quick were you to go to prayer? Was it after you grumbled for a little bit? Was it after you tried to gain control and change the circumstances of the situation? Was it after you started retaliating and lashing out? Was it after you gave up and just went and sunk into despair and numbness? This is hard. This is not the first response that we have as humans to go to God in prayer. And yet what the Psalms are doing is it's teaching us a new way to first go to God. Why? Because he hears you. Answer me when I call. God of my righteousness. Everything that David has, again, he's attributing to receiving it from God. It's not him insofar as it's the anointing that God has put on him. God of my righteousness. And then he remembers that God has delivered me through other things. And so that's another thing that you can do when you're facing these trials, when you're facing these difficulties, is you can think about, this isn't the first time you faced a difficulty, probably, and you're still here. You're still alive. You have probably experienced some degree, some level of deliverance, of relief from that difficult time. That was the Lord doing that is what the psalm's teaching us. You have given me relief when I was in distress. And then he says, be gracious to me and hear my prayer now. And his prayer is very interesting. It's not what you would expect because the prayer kind of shifts to this plea, this pleading. Oh, men, How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So David is now turning his focus on the people who are after him. And he's pleading with them. Don't you see what's happening here? I'm your king. I have been given to you by God to be your king. A king after God's own heart. I am the fulfillment of the promise of God to you, the people of God. It's the promise that God has made to his people over time. All the way back to Abraham. All the way back to Adam and Eve, Eden. And so David is saying, don't you see? My honor 
What is David's honor? Well, last psalm, we remember that the Lord is his honor. The Lord putting his anointing on David is the honor of David. And it's been turned to shame. What should have been a position and a place of honor had become shame. They were pursuing him because he was the king of Israel when that should have been something they honored. How long will my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love the lies that you're hearing? Love the lies of Absalom, my son. Love the lies, Absalom, that you are telling yourself that this is the solution to your problems, that this will give you some satisfaction. Your rebellion shows that you are loving empty promises and seeking after lies. And so here in this second verse, you see there's kind of like this occasion or a catalyst for repentance. And it's happening when we see David, the anointed one, the righteous one, being persecuted, suffering in shame. And so the catalyst or the occasion for repentance is when we see this righteous sufferer. And here's why we know this intuitively. Whenever you see something horrific, it stops you. It's like scratching the record. Everything comes to a standstill. When you see tragedy, when you see evil, you stop and you look. And so that's the effect that David is kind of calling out here, that when these Israelites who are pursuing him, when they see him kind of weeping, when they see him in weakness, when they see him barefoot, mud-covered, bruised, and broken, it should stop. They should consider what's happening. The anointed one, God's king, is being put to shame. The Holy One of Israel, the Lord of the heavenly host, the creator of the world, has put his blessing on this human king, and he's been put to shame. He's being persecuted by the very people he came for, the very people he was given to rule over. And then David kind of gets into the process of repentance. So if that's the occasion or if that's the catalyst for it, there is then a process that he wants these people to enter into. It's amazing. These are the enemies that are persecuting him. And he's trying to get them to turn from their rebellion and to come back. And so the first thing in verse 3 that he says is, hey, you need to know this. No, this is the truth. The Lord has set me apart for himself. And he hears when I call. Remember Psalm 2? Psalm 2 is about this same figure. It's about this messianic figure, this king of Israel. And the warning in Psalm 2, kiss the son, 
lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. So in, this is a little bit of David reminding them of who he is. That you are chasing after me, David, but because of who I am as the Lord's anointed, you are antagonizing the Lord. And you're at risk. Because when I call out to the Lord, he hears me. He sees the evil that is happening here. So know that. Know that nothing that you do, even though it seems right now that you have the upper hand, even though right now it seems like you're going to get away with it, nothing that you do is unseen by God. And he hears me when I call. The second part of this process is... I think it's probably my favorite part of the process just because it's so real. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. Now, I know that this is probably a pretty popular verse. This is one that kind of like you're taught maybe. Um, Maybe if you had Christian parents, they may have taught you this. When you were dealing with some anger, you know, don't sin in your anger. But here's the context So David is really aware of what he just did. And he basically just said, hey, you are working against the Lord. You're fighting him to his enemies. And the initial response when you're confronted like that with an authoritative statement is anger. It's kind of to like be stirred up to run even harder in rebellion to reject it. And so David acknowledges, yeah, this is going to make you mad, what I'm telling you. Because it's true, you are going to be mad about it. But instead of sinning, instead of allowing that anger to fuel your greater rebellion, stop. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, be silent. This is such a beautiful invitation into the process of repentance to stop, to just take a minute to think about what's actually happening here and then to come to some type of understanding, giving yourself that pause giving yourself a little bit of space, some time to cool down and to think about, why am I mad? What's going on there? And in that moment, David's hope is that the truth gets through and that it creates this turning away from rebellion and back to David as the rightful and anointed king of Israel. So there's this moment in repentance, and this is true for us too. We're going to talk about some of the differences in a minute, but this is true for us too, that we have this opportunity for grace. And that that opportunity, that anger, and then if you allow it to sit, it's like, okay, be angry. I understand that. When the Lord confronts me about stuff, I get angry too. I get defensive. 
I start justifying. I start arguing around things. When I see the clear truth in the word that I don't want to hear, I try and get around it, and I get a little bit angry. I get that. But instead of the frantic activity of trying to work yourself out of it, just sit with it. And then ponder internally. Do some soul searching. It's in that place where the Spirit will lead you to repentance, lead you to life, lead you away from death. And then in verse 5, the process culminates in offering right sacrifices. This is the finishing part of the process of repentance. So after this silence, after this inactivity, after you allow the truth to impact you, then there's a positive movement. You're reconciled back to the people. You can bring your sacrifices again in an act of worship before God. And so a miracle has just happened in between verses 5 and 6, six or 4 and 5, excuse me. A miracle has happened because a rebel who is antagonizing the king, pursuing his life, should be put to death by treason, is now being invited back into the fold to offer sacrifices with the rest of the people. It's been reconciled back into Israel, able to offer sacrifices again. And so that's the process. And this process... In verse 6, we see that a lot of it is unseen. A lot of it is happening internally. A lot of it happens by faith. Right? If you think about this for a minute, put yourself into like one of Absalom's men who's going after David, and they're like, oh yeah, we got him on the run. We have the numbers, we have the upper hand. And then you hear David kind of saying like, hey, you need to stop and think about what you're doing and then come back. I'm like, hmm, okay, no, because then I'll be killed with you, and I don't want that. And so that's where in verse 6, David's acknowledging this too. This is not something that's obvious. It's not something that's intuitive. It's not something that happens by sight. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Like, what? how can you expect us to do this? Look at you, you're miserable. Why would we do this? And so what David asks is for the Lord to lift up the light of your face upon him, upon us, upon the people, upon the anointed and the people who are with the anointed king. And then verse 7, we get into the outcome of repentance. So there's that invitation, there's the process, and now there's the outcome. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so again, he's showing the people who are hearing him, don't look at the external things. Don't look at the material things. Because those fade, those come and go. Those are circumstantial and it can be deceiving to look at a snapshot in time because it looks as if the wicked are prospering. 
it looks as if they are winning. And so he grounds the outcome of repentance as joy in his heart, internally, unseen, but real, much more real than the abundance of their grain and wine. The joy that he has is rooted, again, in the presence of God, in the anointing that he has received, in the work that he has been given by the Lord to do. And look at what he says and how he says it in verse 7, because I think that um, we often want to be like self-starting Christians, right? Like good self-starter. Like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conjure up joy. I'm going to make sure that I have joy. And so I'm going to do all the things that I know to produce joy in my heart. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go to all the things. And then you just burn yourself out. I'm not telling you not to do those, but look at how David says the outcome of his repentance is that you, God, have put the joy in my heart. And so I want to talk for a moment to people who are discouraged because you're like, I don't have that joy. That doesn't sound much like me, and I'm supposed to be a Christian. Because I want to tell you, it's not, it's not necessarily because you're doing something wrong. But it might be that you're looking in the wrong place for it. You might be looking at what you can do to get joy instead of just continually going to God who gives it. And he'll give it in his timing. He will put it in your heart but it's him who does it. And then the end, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In peace, peace, shalom, fullness. So yes, it's the absence of conflict, but it's more than that. There's a fullness. It's referencing the joy that has been getting that has been given to him, that joy fills him with a fullness. And it's with that fullness that he's able to sleep, that he's able to stop working, stop running, stop planning, and sleep, trusting that it is the Lord who is keeping him safe. And it's not the Lord plus something. It's not the Lord plus a good plan. It's not the Lord plus fast horses, it's the Lord alone that keeps him safe. Now, in this psalm, there's allusions. David does all of this stuff, but he does it imperfectly. He is the righteous sufferer, but he's only righteous kind of circumstantially. He didn't do anything necessarily in this instance to make this rebellion come upon him. So he is suffering in righteousness, but he's also not perfectly righteous. He is longing for these people to repent, to stop their rebellion, to turn to him. These are his people, and his heart longs for them to stop and to come back, but he has no power to bring it about. 
the end of the story is Absalom, as he's chasing after David, gets himself basically hung in a tree and dies, leading David to great grief. And so there's a futility that David is expressing that should point us forward. And David was able for that night to lie down and to sleep, but he continued to struggle with anxiety. He was like us in that way. He battled that desire to be his own safety, to produce his own safety. But when we read this psalm through the orientation of Jesus, things change. And this is where, remember, it's the cross. Looking at the cross should cause repentance in us. Because that is where Christ's honor was turned into shame. Think about that occasion. And as a Christian, right, if you've been a Christian for a while or if you've just been around churches for a while, it's really easy, it's really dangerous. And it's also easy because you can become kind of numb to the cross. You hear about it a lot, but you don't actually allow it, allow the reality of it to hit you. So in this way, I want you to think about Jesus this morning. I want you to think about him, the promised Messiah, the king of Israel, as he's being mocked, as they place a crown of thorns on him, as they write in the inscription, the king of the Jews, as they shame him. He's the son of David. And his honor is turned to shame. But he's not just the son of David. He's also the son of God. This is God in the flesh who is being shamed. This is the creator of the world suffering, embarrassment, suffering horrific pain, being elevated up on a hill, on a cross, to show off Rome's victory, a little blip in history. This nation thinks that they have defeated the Son of God, and in triumph they raise him up. When we see that, we should stop, and we should think about Jesus saying these words, know that the Lord has set me apart for himself. The Lord hears when I call. And this is where now we're starting to see some of the differences between David and Jesus. Because David, when he says, be angry and do not sin, it has no effect. But Jesus when he comes for his people who, like David's people, rejected him, betrayed him, gave him over to death, but when Jesus speaks, they hear. The words of Jesus cause repentance. And we receive that as his people. You see, this is not addressed only to 
the non-Christians out there, the ones who don't love Jesus. No, this is addressed to everyone because there's only one who has shown good. There's only one who has redeemed the entire world. And it's him. And so in our process of, of repentance, as we look on the cross, I want you to go a little bit deeper to the point of anger. I want you to feel angry at something that Jesus has claimed on your life. I want you to get frustrated. And here's why. Because sometimes I think you just don't go there. And so you don't allow yourself to feel anger. And so there's nothing to repent of. You just hold on to it. And you continue to shield yourself from the call that Jesus has on your life. And that makes the cross indifferent. You might not be the one who is crucifying him, but you're kind of like the person who kind of looks up and is like, "Mm, that's too bad, and keeps walking. Right? You will become indifferent to Jesus unless you allow his word into those places that make you angry. And when you feel angry, know this, that he is calling you. He's calling you. Come to me. Receive from me. Learn from me. And he meets you there as you ponder that, as the Spirit works in you. And he is the one who causes you to trust in the sacrifice that he has offered for you, who shows you how to offer your life in return as a living sacrifice to him. And he's the one that will put joy in your heart there. That's where you find joy. When you go through that process, when you go through the process of confronting your own life with the cross, when you see the cross, when you see the crucifixion of Jesus in all of its horror, and you answer the question, why, why, why did he have to die? And you answer it with your own life. He had to die for me, for my sin. That's how bad I am, that the Son of God had to die. And you receive in that confession, in that receiving of the forgiveness that he offers you, that is the light of the face of God coming upon you, giving you joy, giving you a new understanding of just how much Jesus has loved you, how beautiful he is. And you see in this, last, in this last verse, this idea of peace, a fullness that allows you to lie down and sleep, to rest. And when I was reading this, I was thinking of Jesus. I was thinking of Jesus in that boat with the disciples. And he's sleeping because he's just full of God. He knows that the Lord, his Father, is overseeing all of this. He's not asleep So Jesus, in his human nature, could sleep and rest. But when the disciples wake him up, he's like, oh, they don't know this yet. So he says to the waves, be still. 
the outcome of repentance, the outcome of it, is that you will hear those words in your own soul. The restlessness of your soul will hear and receive the words of Jesus, be still. And as you do that, you're going to continue to do that, right? The whole Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a life of confronting your own heart with the cross and receiving that message, be still. You will have that joy. You will have that fullness. And then, kind of the shape of the Psalms is that as you do that, your life starts to look like Christ. Your life starts to look like the anointed sufferer. And so when you suffer, when you are going through trials, they will be occasions for people to see the life of Christ in you. Because Jesus told us, I am your king. If they come after me, they will come after you. But as they do that, we have this model like, oh, this is what is happening here. This is refining my heart. It's creating love in me. It's stirring me up to love my Savior more. Because as I call out to him, he answers me because of Jesus. And then that becomes a testimony. That becomes a living sermon. That becomes a gospel message that is embodied, that brings glory to God. That becomes our sacrifice. That becomes our worship. And we get to do that together as a congregation, as the church, as the bride of Christ. And so I, I want this to be a psalm that you think about. And I especially want to leave you with this, that don't look away from the honor of Christ being turned into shame. But go there. Bring your sin there. See yourself as the reason for that persecution. And then allow the process to go through your whole life. Because it will produce joy. It will produce joy that will never be stolen from you. And it will give you more ammunition. It will give you more reminders. It will give you more reasons to think, oh, you have given me relief, Lord, when I've been in distress. I can trust you. I can keep walking with you. And that will sustain you as the Spirit works in you. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that um, you've given us the gift of seeing our sin. And you don't sugarcoat it. You don't gloss over it. But you take us to Jesus on the cross and you show us this is what your sin has cost. But Lord, you don't do that to produce guilt that leads to despair and shame. You bring us there so that we might see your love for your people, might see your power over even the most evil thing in the world and your power to turn it to good. 
And so, Lord, I ask that that would guide our lives, that we would know what to do during trials, that we would know that you are not indifferent to them, but that you are transforming them. God, help us to believe that. Help us to live that out. Help us to invite others into that. We ask that you would do this all by the Spirit of your Son, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.